Sunday nights. We've been talking about questions that people have turned in. And so that's what we'll do tonight. Uh, next week, of course, will be our uh, singing night. And then the final one will be the Sunday night following that, the 29th. And we'll wrap up our questions and begin then in the next year on a different topic or a different theme for the year. But tonight, as we begin our lesson, most of you probably have heard the name of a man by the name of Joel Osteen. And Joel Osteen, if you haven't heard of him, is what, was, what is called the pastor of the Lakewood Church in, Dal- in, uh, in Houston, Texas. Uh, the church is said to have some 40,000 members now, according to their own website. And so uh, he was interviewed many years ago now, almost 15 years ago, 14, on Larry King Live, uh, the CNN show. Uh, he had that, Larry King had the CNN show back at that time. And King asked him, he says, what if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? To which Osteen replied, says, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I I, I don't know. Then King followed up and said, well, if you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? To which Osteen replied, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think the only God with, uh, that only God will judge a person's heart. Uh, I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I, know, uh, and I don't know, uh, I, I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and for what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Christ. He just sort of stuttered and stammered around the, the, the whole thing here. But I want you to notice here, he said, I've seen their sincerity. I'm not just calling out Osteen tonight. You know, some folks would just love to attack him for the things that he teaches. And he does teach some things, many things, most things that he teaches are, are way off base. But it's not my point to call him out but to simply show that he is uh, enunciating some things that a lot of folks believe. You see, one of the sacred cows is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Osteen said, you know, I I was in India. I was there with my father. And he said, I know they love God. And I, I saw their sincerity. So he couldn't say whether or not they were going to be saved or not. And so, as we think about this, this is one of the, one of the most uh, sacredly held beliefs by a lot of people in our society today. That it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere about it. You know, when I hear things like this, I can't help but think about the poem about Willie. Any of you ever heard the poem about Willie? Uh, you may have. It may have been a long time ago. I don't know. Uh, Alas for little Willie. We'll see, uh, we'll ne'er see Willie Moore. For what he thought was H2O was really H2SO4. You know, sincerely believing that sulfuric acid is water does not make it water. And it makes it no less deadly for a person who drinks it. Most people seem to understand that there are some, uh, some limits, some boundaries, some, uh, some things that are always true, absolutely true, in everything except for religion. You may have heard of a man by the name of George Clooney. Yes, I'm talking about the actor. He was being interviewed. 
And he said this, he said, in talking about religion, if you're well known, anything you say sort of ticks off a bunch of other people and sort of attacks their belief. So I always try to say that first and foremost, I think that whatever anybody believes, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's fair enough and it works. And so, you know, we can look and we can, can see in other areas, but, but when it comes to religion, and that's, that's what Clooney is pointing out, when it comes to religion, you know, if you talk very long at all, then you're going, as he says, you're going to tick somebody off. And, and he talks about it from the standpoint of being a celebrity and all of that. Another man by the name of Josh McDowell, you probably uh, have not heard of him. He is a, a quote-unquote Christian writer, but he does make a good point. He said, belief will not create fact. Truth is independent of belief. No matter how hard I may try, believing something will not make it true. For example, I may believe with all my heart that I want it to snow tomorrow, but this will not guarantee snow. Or I may believe that my run-down old car is really a new Mercedes convertible, but my belief won't change the facts. You know, that's real. What he says is really true. Just because we hold something to be true does not necessarily make it true. And the problem is we can be as sincere as we possibly can about something and sincerely believe that it is true, but we have no power to make it true uh, and make it the reality that we really want it to be. And so tonight, as we think about it again, does it really make any difference? Is believing just anything, is that permissible in the realm of Christianity? And again, I think we all understand it in other realms, but in the realm of Christianity. I'll go ahead and say tonight as we get started into this lesson that I'm probably not going to say anything that this audience doesn't already realize and understand. But I want us to have things from the Word of God. And I want us to be able to back it up with Scripture and things that, that we need to know. And so let me begin by asking a couple of questions. Does it matter if I believe some certain things? Number one tonight, does it matter if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent to save sinners? Does it, does it really make any difference whether I believe that or not? Think about what is said in the book of John chapter 8 at verse 24. Jesus himself makes this statement. He said, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. How's it going to be for us? What is the outcome? What's the reality if we die in our sins? You know, the Bible teaches very plainly that there's nothing that's sinful or anything that defiles that will enter into heaven. And so if I die in my sins, it pretty much guarantees, just thinking about it off the surface here, that I'm not going to be there. Jesus says, you have got to believe that I am He. He who? I'm the Son of God. 
I'm the one who came to save mankind from their sins. You know, there are a lot of people in, in the religious world today who are not necessarily of the Christian religion, who sincerely believe that, that Jesus was a man, and, and they sincerely believe that Jesus was a good man, and that Jesus set a good example for people to follow, but they do not believe that He is the Son of God. Now these people who believe in the historical Jesus, that is, that He existed and that He was a good man, just because they believe that He was a good man, that He did exist and was a good man, doesn't get them any closer to heaven. Because they fail to do what Jesus said here. Believe that I am really the one. That I am He. I'm the one who has come down from God to save man from their sins. And so, even though there are people there outside who believe, they're not believing what Jesus said for them to believe. And so, does it make any difference? Well, if we take Jesus' words at their value, their face value even, we understand it makes a difference. Here's another one. Does it make any difference if I believe that the resurrection is already past or not? Does it, does it really make any, any difference if I do that? Well, let's look at another passage of Scripture. Uh, in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, we note that the Apostle Paul writes to avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. It's already sounding like something bad, isn't it? Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, if you analyze this passage and you look at it, what you find is that Paul warns Timothy to shun irreverent babble is the way that it's translated in the English Standard Version. But again, as you analyze it, Paul points out that there were two men who were teaching what he terms as vain or irreverent babble. These two men were named Hymenaeus and Philetus. And the irreverent babble that they were teaching had to do with the resurrection. And they said at that point that the resurrection had already passed. Now, what was the result of their teaching? Well, they swerved from the truth themselves, but number two, they affected other people. Notice toward the end of that passage, he says that they are upsetting the faith of some. If you read from the King James or the New King James Version, you read the word that they were overthrowing the faith of some. The word literally means to turn over, to overturn, to upset, as in upsetting the apple cart. That's, what he, that's the word that's used. And if you want an example where it's used in another place in the Word of God, all you need to do is turn to the book of John, chapter 2 at verse 15. In John chapter 2, verse 15, we read about Jesus, how that He made a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple, talking about the money changers and so forth. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and watch this, 
and overturned their tables. That's the word that is used here in 2 Timothy. That's what was happening to the faith of some people. Because of the, the, the false teaching, they've swerved from the truth. That's what's happening to the faith of some, even in Paul's day, being caused by Hymenaeus and Philetus. They're teaching something, and if it doesn't make any difference what one believes, why would it not be right to believe what they were teaching? That the resurrection was already past. And if it's okay to believe that, why is the faith of other people being affected by it? See, the answer is that it does make a difference. And so as we look at it then, we know. Here's another one. Let's throw out number three. Does it really make any difference if we teach that we must follow the Old Testament? That we must follow the Old Testament. You know, some of the Jewish Christians in the first century believed that all male Christians had to be circumcised just like all all of the Jewish babies were circumcised on the eighth day. If you don't believe that, go to the book of Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15 at verse 5, the Bible simply says, But some believers, and in context talking about those who are Jewish believers, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary. Something is, is necessary. What is it? It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, they had been taught the truth, the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of their sins, uh, to make the great confession, to be baptized for the remission of sins. And these Christians that they're talking about had done that. By the way, they're talking about Gentile Christians in Acts chapter 15. But these Jewish brothers said in the midst of the apostles and others that, that no, it wasn't enough for them to be immersed into Christ. They had to go back and keep the Old Testament law as well. You know what? That wasn't the only time that that came up in, in the Bible, is it? If you have your Bible, you may turn to the book of Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and we encounter... The same kind of topic again, the same kind of thing. And Paul writes there, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Talking about the Old Testament law. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that's what they were teaching back in Acts chapter 15, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. He said if you want to make everybody do that and if you want to teach everybody to be circumcised, then there's one thing that you're required to do. You got to go back and you got to keep the whole thing, all of the Old Testament law. Now, what did that include? Well, not only did it include circumcision, but it also included the Sabbath day, and it also included the uh, uh, offering of bulls and goats uh, as sacrifices. 
keeping the Passover, keeping the, uh, uh, the Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, and it also included keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And so anybody who wanted to keep the law, they had to go back and do all of it. Does it make any difference? Well, I would say that truly it does. But, but here's a point that I want to make. And that's how do we bring that forward? You know, there are some today who still believe and who teach openly that all we have to do is keep the Ten Commandments. As long as we keep the Ten Commandments, we'll be good. Well, what about the other 603? There, according to the Jewish rabbi, 613 laws in the Old Testament that Jesus abolished. And yet, those who would go back to that, go back, as Paul calls it here in Galatians, go back to that yoke of slavery... And if we're obligate, or if we're choosing to seek and and keep just one portion, we can't do that. Just like they were seeking to keep one portion in regard to circumcision, they couldn't do just that. We can't do just that. We are obligated, as Paul says, to keep the whole law. If someone tells you that all you have to do is keep the Ten Commandments and be a good person. Ask them when the next trip to Jerusalem is. Ask them about what sacrifice they offered on a burnt altar. And we could spend a lot of time tonight talking about what is taught in the book of Hebrews. When we start to do that, when we, when we go back to the blood of bulls and goats offering those sacrifices... We have taken away the very blood that actually will save us from our sins. The blood of Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews made it very clear that the blood of bulls and goats could never do that. And so does it make any difference then if we, if we believe that, that we're just keep these, these, these laws from the, from the Old Testament? Again, we have to answer that in the affirmative, yes, it makes a difference. Even to the point of we'd be obligated to keep the whole law. And we separate ourselves from Christ. And we remove Himself from His grace. We have fallen away from grace. And so does it make any difference? Well, if we believe these things, we've seen three. All it would take is one. To point out that there's one, that it makes a difference in regard to that, and if we can point out one, then we know it makes a difference. But I've given you three witnesses tonight. But not only that, <coughs> if it doesn't matter, may I ask you tonight, why are there so many warnings to guard against false teaching found in the Word of God? And I can't by any means give you all of them, but let me share a few with you. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. While Jesus was on earth, he made this statement that says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. If what we believe doesn't make any difference, then listening to these false prophets shouldn't make any difference. And that would make Jesus look awfully foolish in making that statement, would it not? Here's another one. Turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. John wrote and said, Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Does it make any difference? Well, if it doesn't, then why is Paul, or rather John, why is he warning us? Why does he say to even worry about checking things out to see if it comes from God or not? If it really doesn't make any difference, why would I need to? Number three, 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse number 1. The Bible says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. We've moved a step farther in what Peter says here, haven't we? Peter not only says it matters, it matters so much that they themselves are bringing destruction upon themselves. And so, false prophets, they arose in the Old Testament, that's what Peter says, and false prophets have arisen during the time of the New Testament. And what they bring is destructive heresies. So destructive that it will destroy one's so, and so again, we have another warning. What about 1 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 3? Paul says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, if it doesn't make any difference, why would Paul urge Timothy to stay in Ephesus and, and teach them anything? wouldn't make any sense. Timothy should have just loaded up and went to Macedonia with Paul. But folks, it does make a difference. We have the warnings. And, and as you continue looking at other passages, there, there are many others tonight. But let me just point out that none of these things that we're looking at, none of them harmonize with one of, a, one of the other sacred cows of our society of today called pluralism. Pluralism has infected and infested our country, our society in a number of different ways. You say, well, what in the world is pluralism? Let me give you two short definitions, two things here. First of all, it's a theory that there are more than one or uh, that there are more than one or more than two kinds of ultimate reality. Now let that one sink in for a minute. There's more than one or more than two kinds of ultimate reality. You know, there are a lot of folks that I'd like to ask sometimes, what reality are you living in? You hear some of the politicians talk, and you, and you just have to believe that they're in some other world somewhere, some other universe Maybe, you know, they're in some multiverse of some kind. But if there's more than one, quote-unquote, reality, then what does that say to you? What you believe is true may not really be true because you may not be in the same reality as someone else. If you don't believe you're in the same reality as someone else, don't tell them I said do this, but pinch them on the arm. See where that gets you. 
you'll figure out they're here. They are. They're in this reality, whether their mind is accepting it or not. But even more importantly than that is the latter part that I have on the screen for you. The acceptance of all religious paths as equally valid, thus promoting coexistence. How many of you have been driving down the road, got behind a car, and it had a bumper sticker on it? It had all these religious symbols on it, and they all spell out co-exist. Do you realize that's pluralism? That's pluralism. Everybody's religion is equal. That's what our society is teaching us. The only problem is that many who promote that believe that all religions are equal except Christianity, and that one is to be pushed down, snuffed out, gotten rid of. Some even argue that pluralism demands more than just toleration of a different religion, but it also proceeds to the acceptance of it. On our newscasts, in books, in numerous places, so many have talked about the peaceful religion of Islam. And how we ought to be very tolerant of that peaceful religion. And every other religion, no matter where it originated, and how foolish it might be. Pluralism. You see, in looking at these four scriptures that I gave you, in talking about being aware that there are false prophets out there, None of them would fit in, in our society the way it's deemed in so many different areas today. But let's move forward tonight. Let's simply observe this, that truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. And not only is truth by its very nature exclusive, but when we think about truth, truth is objective as well. Now, what do we mean by truth being objective? Some of your teachers, suppose that you're a teacher of a, uh, of a social studies or a, I guess you would say a, a one of the other classes uh, uh, in regard to history and things like that. But suppose the teacher were to give her class a test question that simply ask, what is the capital of the state of Alabama? And on one of her students' papers, she marks it wrong when he puts Birmingham. The student couldn't believe it. He asked her, he said, uh, what makes your opinion any more valid than mine? 
And, and he decided he'd go over her head. And so he turned to the rest of the class and he said, how many of you put Birmingham on that question? And about half the class raised their hands. What makes her, let's put this in quotation marks, what makes her opinion more valid? Is it because she's the teacher? No, it's not because she's the teacher. It's because there's one reality. There's one right answer. And the answer is not Birmingham. The answer for the capital of Alabama is Montgomery. When we get to the answer Montgomery, we have gotten to the objective truth. On a different level, in the same classroom, we have the same teacher and we have the same student. And the student comes and tells the teacher, says, it's too hot in this classroom. And the teacher replies, no, it's just right in this classroom. In that scenario, which one is right? You know, people have different, uh, different feelings in regard to temperature. If you don't believe that, go to church one day. Or try to run the thermometer or the thermostat. I think I've told this before. If I ever design a church building... On the back of every pew in front of every person sitting, there's going to be a thermostat. Now, it probably won't be hooked to anything, but you can put it on whatever you want it to be. But getting back to our teacher scenario, which one is right? May just be the one in authority on that day. May just be the teacher. Because you know what? The answer to that question is... Subjective. There is no absolute right and wrong answer. Now listen closely. What our society has tried to do is to take the answer to the question of how one is to be saved and move it from the objective category and put it into the subjective category. And that won't work because that brings all kinds of confusion and argument. You know, everyone acknowledges the notion of absolute truth on some level. Let me illustrate. Some of you may remember, some of you weren't even born yet, <coughs> but some of you may remember that back in August of 1985, August 2nd of 1985, that there was a Delta Airlines flight by the number of 191, whose captain was Ted Connors, and as he prepared to land his jumbo jet at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, he looked in front of him and he saw a, a, a cloud that had formed at the end of runway 17L. And for some reason, whether he believed that his three powerful Rolls-Royce engines or the combined 43,000 hours of flight time and experience with his crew 
And the fact that other planes had landed at the Dallas-Fort Worth area airport, you know, not too awfully long before, he decided that rather than going around that cloud, he would fly through the cloud. And he did. And approximately one mile short of the runway, there was a microburst which forced the airplane down to the ground, hitting a car on the ground, hitting two water towers that were nearby, and disintegrating the plane, killing 137 people. You know, when it comes to the laws of aerodynamics and physics, they're constant. There are some laws, such as gravity, that we understand to be constant. If you go jump off a tall building, you're not floating up. You're falling down, right? How many times? Ten out of ten, you're going down because of gravity. You know what the FAA and the whatever that other... in whatever other, you know what they decided in regard to this tragic plane crash? That the pilot made a mistake not understanding the laws of aerodynamics and the effect that microbursts could have on them. These are laws. And God has laws. That truth is objective, and everybody, even when it comes to flying airplanes, people understand that there are laws that cannot be violated. But why can't we understand it when it comes to the Word of God, to His Bible? In answer, yes, it does matter what one believes. As we begin to wrap it up tonight... Some people might argue that all religions, well, they teach basically the same thing, don't they? And I would admit that there are some similarities, but there are major differences as well. Just consider very briefly tonight five major religions and their teaching regarding salvation in the afterlife. If you were to listen to the Hindus, they would say that we all need to recognize ourselves as divine beings lest we sentence ourselves to an endless cycle of birth and death and rebirth. And the only way to break that cycle is through four yogas that sound anything like what we teach? They teach reincarnation. But the Bible teaches not reincarnation. The Bible teaches resurrection. What about the Buddhists? Buddhist. Buddha was a dissatisfied, originally, follower of the Hindu, and he branched off. And he said that man's greatest problem is the desire for pleasure, status, as well as the necessities of life. The only way you can stop the cravings and enter into the restful state of nirvana is by following the noble eightfold path. 
lot of differences there. What about Islam? Islam teaches that one must follow the laws of Allah. That there are two angels that accompany every individual. One writes all the good things. The other writes all the bad things. And if the bad outnumbers the good, you're saved. Or or, uh, the good outnumbers the bad, you're saved. And if it's the other way around, you're lost. Or you can die by killing an infidel. And in that case, you're guaranteed salvation. Doesn't sound anything like Christianity. It's not even close to Hinduism or Buddhism. Judaism says, obey the law of God, the Old Testament, and you'll be saved. Christianity says that salvation is through the blood of Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. All religions teach basically the same thing. I don't think so. Not even close. It's philosophically possible that all religions may be wrong, but it's impossible to say that they're all right because there's so many different and contradicting things. How could so many be so wrong? How many? Have we read the Word of God? Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those that find it are few. In Matthew 22, verse 14, the chapter we were in this morning in our, uh, in our study, Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. How could so many be so wrong? You know what? It's called Satan's deception. Satan has lied to so many, and they have believed And they have begun the false religions and the false teachings that are there. Do you remember John chapter 8 at verse uh, 44? You're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Did he not deceive Eve? When we go back to the book of Genesis, lie to her? Yeah. Well, what makes you think he's going to do any different today? Which would cause us to think of what is said in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now how will they do that? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Does it matter? Yes, it does. But so many people are are outside of, of Christ. There's so many billions of people who have never become Christian in any sense of the word. We need to place the blame where the blame is due. And where is that? on the father of lies who has caused them and allowed them and and helped to conjure up so many different things. One last thing, 
A.W. Tozer, you may have heard his name. He was not a New Testament Christian, but he was a quote-unquote Christian writer. He said, little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accomplished definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need a return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the Word of God that lives and abides forever. I think he's right. Things have become so watered down, so diluted, that really nobody stands for anything much anymore. And because of that, things like pluralism and any form of false teaching can pretty well get by. And we believe that as long as people are sincere, it really doesn't matter what they believe. But we need to grow a backbone, not to be ugly, not to be smug, not to be a person who, who you know, looks down on people. But we need to stand firm because we have the only way that anybody is going to heaven. Found in the New Testament. It may be tonight that you yourself need to be obedient to the Lord. It may be tonight that you have become a New Testament Christian, but you've fallen away. And you need to come back to Him. If we can assist you in any way tonight, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing.